It is 2000 in Tel Aviv, 1900 in Berlin, 1800 here in London and 1400 in Brasilia. You are listening to Monocle 24. Monocle's House View starts now. This is Monaco's House View coming up today. I don't see Netanyahu agreeing to serve in a government unless he's prime minister. Similarly, Benny Gantz wants the top job, but just how the numbers will work out is really anybody's guess. Israel's election too close to call. My guests Daniel Pellet and Victor Boomer-Thomas will discuss another indecisive result for the country and the day's other news, including a new report that highlights the increasing urgency of protecting the Amazon rainforest and we'll discuss the changes of UK's opposition parties in any potential upcoming election. Plus, the robots are coming and the UK is woefully underprepared. The ever-advancing march of AI. I am Mark Hippie, Monaco's house view starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Daniela Pellet, managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Victor Bulma Thomas, associate fellow at Chatham House. We begin in Israel. Polls for the country's second election in six months, which took place yesterday, are looking like it's another close result. Current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of the Likud Party and rival Benny Gantz of the centrist Blue and White Opposition are going head-to-head, but will likely have to form a coalition. Yesterday, Daniela Pellet joined us to tell us where all this might be going, and she is back today to continue to try and help us work that out. Daniela, what should we make of this? Well, the way the votes have landed is not that dissimilar to what happened in April. And once again, it seems that uh, Avigdor Lieberman uh, will once again be the kingmaker. In April, he uh, refused to sit in government unless the ultra-Orthodox were forced to serve in the army. This is the perennial, one of the perennial themes of Israeli politics. And it looks like, I think he has nine seats right now, it looks like he will be in a similar position. Logically, you might look at the the way the numbers uh, rack up, because of course in Israel it doesn't matter who wins who becomes the largest party, it's who can form a coalition. You would think that Likud and the Blue and White Party could, with another couple of centrists, maybe even centre-left parties, form a coalition. That seems very unlikely. I don't see Netanyahu agreeing to serve in a government unless he's prime minister. Uh, similarly, Benny Gantz wants the the top job, but just how the numbers will work out is, is really anybody's guess. Mm. How significant is this election result for the Middle East more widely? What do you think, Victor? Well, I guess it depends how it uh, turns out. I mean, at the moment, we have a stalemate, clearly. Uh, If the coalition building process were to be a bit more radical and involve the Arab-Israeli parties in the joint list it might look very different, but there seems to be very little chance of that. So one assumes that uh, the coalition building process will be more or less business as usual. Uh, We have a very similar story in Spain, of course, Um, and it seems we get into this endless cycle of elections that are unable to uh, (coughs) break the impasse. 
Daniela, what does Benjamin Netanyahu's position look now? Let's remember that he called a snap election in April because he failed to form a coalition. What do you think he's thinking now? Uh, his gamble did not pay off. And various uh, various uh, tactics he used to try and ensure that he would get a larger part of the vote, for instance, his usual warnings about Arabs turning out and the uh, falsifying elections actually led to a much higher Arab uh, turnout in these elections. Um, rather desperate measures by saying that he was going to uh, he was going to declare sovereignty over the settlements and the settlement blocks. That didn't particularly work either. And his uh, his um, colleagues in in Likud, I'm sure now, are scenting weakness and thinking, how can we get rid of him? Uh, and actually, carry you know, play a part in in the next government. But I think you know, Victor raises a, a very good point, which I think says quite a lot about the state of uh, Israeli democracy at the moment. We have the third largest party in the Knesset, the the Joint List, the Arab Party, Arab the coalition, which represents the political uh, interests of a full twenty percent of the population. And it's absolutely, I quote, absurd for Israeli politicians to think of forming a coalition. Ahead of the elections, everyone ruled it out. It was seen as laughable. So that really says something about where we are in terms of representative democracy. And the other thing that uh, we can notice, you know, how where Israeli uh, democracy has, has gone for the last 10, 15 years, 10, 15 years ago, Avigdor Lieberman was seen and widely described as far right. His politics were seen as out, slightly outside the consensus and really extreme. Now he is the centrist of the centre and, again, the the guy who is going to be making the decisions uh, mm. in the election. So the results will be will be clearer hopefully later today. What, what do you think, Daniela? Just a final question for you. Are we going to see another election anytime soon? Well, it's very likely. Um, the next one, what though, won't be for before January or February. And the joke going around on social Israeli social media is that you know you get the day off for the election uh, in Israel, and it's not going to be beach weather. I think people are upset about that. Can I just add one thing? I mean, the the shadow of U.S. politics hangs very heavy over Israeli politics. And clearly, as long as Donald Trump is in the White House, uh, it's very difficult to see uh, a big change there. But, of course, there is an election in the U.S. in just over a year's time. And were the Democrats to win it with a progressive candidate, uh, I think Israeli politics might start to look quite different. Do you agree, Daniela? Well, I mean, I think we, we, we look at Israel... Palestine in exactly those terms from outside the, the, the occupation and Palestinian independence. The problem is, is that in terms of is, internal Israeli politics, it really doesn't feature anymore. The majority of Israelis, from right to left to centre, think of the occupation as uh, a necessarily e- necessary evil. Perhaps can be made a little bit better, but they do not see uh, a solution with a sovereign Palestine as the end goal. Daniela Pellet and Victor Bulma-Thomas there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Daniel Beige with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Marcus. The European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, says London and Brussels should not pretend to be negotiating a deal if there are no new proposals on the table. Barnier says the UK telling the EU what it does not like about the current agreement is, quote, not enough. One of the key figures in Venezuela's opposition has been released from prison. Edgar Zambrano was detained earlier this year for supporting a failed uprising, which was organized by Juan Guaido. Mr. Guaido is recognized as Venezuela's interim president by more than 50 nations. 
And today's Monocle Minute reports on the debut of the Chicago Invitational. The four-day contemporary art show will feature some 40 international exhibitors, including Los Angeles Night Gallery. For more on this story, head over to monocle.com minute. Those are some of the day's headlines. Now back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Danielle. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Victor Bulma Thomas and Daniela Pellet. Let's move on now to the Americas, where the environment and how to preserve it are in the headlines today. We'll begin in Brazil, where a new report from Human Rights Watch claims that criminal gangs are influencing the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, and that out of 300 cases of killings in the Amazon over the past 10 years, only 14 have resulted in a trial in court. Victor, you are a specialist in Latin American affairs. What's new in this report and should we be surprised? Uh, Not if you've been following uh, the issues of uh, judicial competence and so on, not just in Brazil but in other countries. I have to say uh, 14 out of 300 is nearly 3%. There are many countries, uh, including in Colombia, sadly, where impunity is uh, uh, much higher than that. I mean, you know, it's less than 3% that actually end up facing trial or or, or being uh, sent to jail. So I don't think there's any surprise in that. I mean, the big issue here is whether... Uh, the president, President Bolsonaro, with his uh, language and actions has uh, made a very bad problem much worse. And I think the answer is he has. Why do you think that is? What we've we've been seeing in recent months has been that Bolsonaro has been very, very reluctant to allow, for example, the international community to help control the forest, forest fires we've seen over there. What is your impression? Why is that? I think this problem goes back to the 1960s. Before the 1960s, the Brazilian Amazon, indeed all the Amazon, and remember there are eight countries that share the Amazon, the Brazilian Amazon was largely protected because it was so inaccessible. The, The military that took power in 1964 changed that by building these extraordinary roads right through the Amazon giving access uh, to uh, uh, farmers and loggers and so on for the first time, nearly all of which was illegal. And, of course, uh, they that raises the question of is the best way to protect the Amazon to leave it untouched or is the best way to carry out what the Brazilian government calls uh, uh, sustainable development? Uh, the answer is sustainable development of the Amazon is probably a farce. Uh, the whole idea is, I think, uh, deeply contradictory. But the idea of leaving it pristine is no longer an option. And so the question is, if this is a resource of such value to the world, like Antarctica, for example, then a mechanism has to be found in which all the countries of the Amazon, not just Brazil, but all of them, are assisted in ways that will preserve it as far as possible from illegal activity. The countries on their own would find that difficult. And indeed, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a strong case for other countries uh, contributing to that. But it has to be a collective mechanism. It can't just be France or Ireland saying, you know, we don't like what you're doing and therefore uh, we will punish you in some other way. Daniela, where do you draw the limit when it comes to, say, Brazil's national sovereignty? Do you think all countries should have some kind of a say over what's happening in the Amazon rainforest? Uh, I think if we look at it as a, as a, as a global resource, that that's absolutely the case. But the issue is, is that countries left to their own 
devices will act according to narrow interests sometimes, and certainly narrow economic interests. There does need to be outside intervention. And when America is quite clearly supports this whole idea of uh, sustainable development, which I agree seems like a, a contradiction in terms, um, you need input from other supranational bodies. How much influence the EU can have, for instance, in terms of uh, its economic involvement in Brazil... But there's a wider issue as well, which also affects uh, national politics, is this whole culture of impunity in a country where gun violence is is, is incredibly high. Uh, police killings are rampant. And so it goes beyond uh, the issue of the Amazon as this wonderful global resource that we need to protect, but also to a wider national human rights issue. Victor, how hopeless is this situation? What do you suggest? What needs to change? What would be realistic first steps in trying to address all these issues? Well, I think there are two issues. There's the issue of Brazil and there's the issue of the Amazonian countries as a whole. The issue of Brazil, I think, as long as Bolsonaro is president, is pretty hopeless. Uh, There may be some uh, cosmetic changes in order to prevent uh, EU states from uh, failing to or refusing to ratify the Uh, EU-Mercosul agreement that was uh, reached uh, a a couple of months ago. Uh, But not much progress is going to be made as long as Bolsonaro is president and Trump is in the White House. If you're talking about the region as a whole, I think it's much more hopeful. And the fact is that the eight countries did meet a month ago uh, to try and work out uh, a range of uh, options to reduce uh, illegal activity. Uh, I mean, Bolsonaro is not saying illegal activity should become legal. It's Mm. just that his language and actions have made illegal activity much more likely. And so the pressure from the neighbours may help in reducing some of that. Well, let's hope so. In related news, yesterday, environmental campaigner, the teenaged Swedish activist Greta Thunberg visited Washington to meet with members of the US Senate Climate Crisis Task Force. While there, she didn't waste any time. I know you are trying, she said, but just not hard enough. Sorry. Daniela, she was very clear, firm and direct. Do you think we need more clear messaging like this on an issue such as climate change? Well, it's very easy to do clear messaging like that. It's very easy and it's also very populist to do it. And I'm now going to sound like a terribly (laughs) grumpy old woman. But, you know, it's very easy for a 16 year old to say, oh, this is what you're not trying hard enough. Do more. I'm going to sail across the the Atlantic uh, because I can. Uh, Sorry, I'm not going to I'm not going to bunk off work on Friday uh, in a, as part of the global strike. And I'm not going to take my kid out of school either because I think that's what, what happens is then, it, as I said, it's populism. It makes people feel better about themselves. But at the same time, don't you think that, you know, after all these headlines, people are more aware? People are more aware, but it's not down to, uh, rather unfashionably, I don't think it is down to individuals to make this difference. This, hap- this has to happen on a governmental level. This has to happen on, a, on an international level. Taking out your recycling is, I, I would be really interested to know how much of it is about making us feel better and what is the actual global impact. Victor, what's your take? I'm a great fan and I take it you were giving us the correct Scandinavian pronunciation of her surname, is that right? Thunberg, yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, I'm a great fan and I think for two reasons. She's the real deal, but unlike uh, a number of young people who've been in this position and who subsequently get co-opted because they are um, seduced by the trappings of power. 
I don't think she will be. I think she's a remarkable young woman, and I think uh, she is, if you like, uh, one of the consciences of the world. And the second issue is that because uh, I don't think she will be co-opted, she can speak through these politicians who clearly love the photo ops of a handshake with her, but she can speak through them to a much bigger audience that she could ever reach on her own uh, as a student in, uh, in, in Sweden. And by doing so, she raises the issue of the environment in national elections. So, for example, in the US, when they have their uh, elections next year, and I'm not just talking about the presidential one, I'm also talking about for the House of Representatives and the Senate and so on. Thanks to uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, we can I just think, call her Thunberg. <laughs> I think that she will uh, have played a very important role by nudging that issue higher up the agenda, so that candidates have to come clear about what they believe in. So let's 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 look into your crystal ball. What do you think we will consider as her greatest accomplishment, achievement in a few years' time? I think. That's a very difficult question, but one hopes that she will hold countries to their commitments, uh, whether it's on uh, the UN commitments with regard to 2030 or individual countries with regard to 2050 or whatever it is. She will, by her uh, very direct approach to politicians, force them to become more explicit about what it is they're going to do to achieve these particular goals. And the UK is a very good example where we have these wonderful ambitions, but actually it's not at all clear how governments intend to get there. And I think people like Greta Thunberg will help us in achieving that. Well, Daniel, just finally one question to you. So obviously we've been hearing warnings from academics for years and years and years. Do you think they could learn some lessons from Greta? Uh, once again, grumpy old lady. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, as a journalist, I love the narrative idea of this pure, young campaigner standing up against the man. That's great. But 16-year-olds have a 16-year-old view of the world. And climate change is a problem that we all need to solve, but it's going to have a much, much messier solution than one that is so binary, good versus bad. Well, finally today, the leader of the UK's opposition party, Jeremy Corbyn, has announced that he'll pursue what he calls a sensible deal on Brexit and that he'll carry out whatever the people decide. The UK has been deeply polarised for the past three years with the country now just weeks away from a catastrophic no-deal exit from the European Union. Victor, is this in any way a clear enough policy for voters to get behind Corbyn at a potential future election? We shall see. I think it's a perfectly plausible position to take. It's reminiscent of the one that Harold Wilson took in 1975 when he called the first referendum on uh, EU membership, uh, in which he allowed a free vote by uh, party members. Um, I think... um, I think it makes a lot of sense, actually, because he presides over a party uh, which contains perhaps a majority of uh, Remainers, but an awful lot of people who voted Labour in the last election uh, voted Leave in 2016. So uh, I think it's uh, unreasonable to expect him to come out 100% for Remain uh, a la Liberal Democrats when 
so many Labour voters voted to leave, so many Labour MPs represent vote-leaving constituencies and so on. Whether it, it is a tricky message to get across. It does demand a certain amount of sophistication on the part of the uh, electorate. And dare I say it, it requires a certain amount of um, respect from the media because the media have adopted this somewhat mocking tone towards Corbyn's uh, Brexit policy. Not just his uh, Brexit policy. Uh, no, true. But I mean, the fact is, I think uh, the man deserves a, a proper hearing on this. And let's have less of the sarcasm and let's listen a bit more to what he actually says. Well, Daniel, how excited are you by this? Well, I've new, been, let's call it new approach. Well, I've been listening to what Mr Corbyn has said uh, since he was elected leader of the Labour Party and before, and I don't like any of it. I think he lacks sophistication. He lacks any kind of leadership. The current the current Tory government is a clear disaster for this country, and yet this massive open goal that surely would should be able to usher in a, a, a Labour victory... I can't see it happen. I can't see it happening. I don't think anyone uh, in their right mind would vote for Corbyn to be the next prime minister of this country. So, what should Labour do? What should that party do now to win more popularity? What do you suggest? Elect a new leader. Elect a new leader. He's a terrible leader. Showed no leadership, which help, which doesn't help. Hugely divisive. Has not managed to show any kind of uh, direction on major issues, uh, foreign policy, domestic policy. His the party is falling apart and he is very very radical and so not able to lead a, uh, a party which has to represent a broad church of people. Victor do you think that the issue of Brexit has somehow been even more divisive and damaging for the Labour Party than for the Conservatives? No I don't. Uh, I disagree completely with what Daniela has just said. Um, if you think back to 2017, when, again, people were saying it's hopeless, he's hopeless, uh, they can't win an election, etc., etc., uh, his the performance of the Labour Party took everyone by surprise, perhaps even Corbyn himself. Uh, they didn't have a, enough uh, to form an actual uh, outright uh, majority, but they did much better than everybody expected. And I don't see any reason why that couldn't happen again. Victor Blumatomas and Daniela Pennett, thank you. In a moment, are the robots coming for all our jobs? You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. Finally today, have you ever wondered if a robot might one day be able to do your job? Well, according to a new report, the UK government isn't doing enough to make sure that doesn't become a reality. Josh Fennert has more. The robots are coming and the UK is woefully underprepared, says a new report out today by the House of Commons Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee. This morning, it released a screed entitled Automation, the Future of Work, which warns that Great Britain has fallen behind its G7 friends, or competitors as it frames them, and must, simply must, put forward a cogent robot and AI strategy by 2020. The aim? To take advantage of the opportunities for economic growth and jobs and the coming gear shift they will doubtlessly yield. The sound you just heard was the baby hitting the ground with the bathwater. As grabby governments eye up the dividends of automation and AI for the economic bottom line, there's not much in the way of hope for the souls who stand to lose their jobs and the real danger of widening the UK's existing regional disparity and economic equality. The solution for those who stand to be replaced by robots is retraining. The irony 
is that the responsibility will be shouldered by an underfunded education system, one that has for years funneled students into narrowing science, engineering and maths-based curriculums that will make them easy prey, ideal to be replaced by, well, robots. Maybe it's time for a reboot. For Monocle, I'm Josh Fennett. That was Josh Fennett and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and Alex Port Phoenix. Coming up at 2000 London time, we have a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 London time, 10 a.m. in Los Angeles. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening and goodbye.